The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning, and I am so glad we were able to begin the service with communion because as we're dealing with these uh, seven deadly sins, or not all seven, but a few of them, uh, it absolutely demands that we come to the cross first and we get our hearts right with the Lord. Otherwise, we'll get things reversed and it'll be very, very uh, difficult. So I'm glad about that. And we're looking at some of the characteristics of God, that God is great and glorious, good and gracious. If we're going to deal with some of these things that we need to kill, uh, put them to death. Romans chapter 12 says that we need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, and that comes as a response to the gospel. And because of that, then we're no longer to be conformed to the world. These things that conform us to the world really limit what God can do. I'm think, I was just thinking as I was sitting here uh, a few minutes ago, how God has given us a wonderful vision for Parkview. I think that's one of the things that we've enjoyed so much about Doug Schillinger. It's given us a wonderful vision for all that God wants to do. Well, that's contingent upon the church. That's contingent upon this local church. And so uh, the thing that we're going to talk about today, our generosity is what's going to allow that wonderful vision to materialize. We don't base the vision on where we are now. We base the vision for the church on what God's calling us to do. So this is one thing we need to really come to grips with. I think if we truly want God uh, to have first place in our life, and when we do that, we will, we will be alive. Uh, it is going to deal with this thing that's called greed. That's what we're talking about today, killing greed. Last week, Doug talked about killing envy. This week, killing greed. I think next week, Doug, Fern, uh, killing pride, right? So it's a great, great series. And the, the word greed is such an interesting word. It comes from uh, actually comes from Old Saxon and then from Old Saxon to Old High German and from Old High German to Old English. And it really means uh, an inordinate appetite, having an inordinate appetite. So we'll talk about that. And if God wants to be first place in our life and he says that we should have no other idols before him, no other gods before him, then it's something we need to deal with. And we're going to look at a couple of different biblical examples. One that looks at the example of greed. In other words, somebody who has this inordinate appetite, and then somebody who really illustrates radical generosity. So let me pray and ask God for, for him to just open our hearts, open our spirits, and teach us through his word. Oh, Lord, we really, we really need this. And I, boy, Lord, as I've prayed to you over and over these last few weeks preparing this, I absolutely need it. Uh, you need to continue to do a powerful work in my own heart. So I just pray that your Holy Spirit will work powerfully, that you would, uh, Lord, uh, not allow us to be defensive against your scripture, but just to listen, uh, to listen and to be led, to be challenged uh, in an appropriate way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look, first of all, at this greedy fool. So what I'd like for us to do is to turn to Luke 12. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to read his story. In Luke 12, 13 to 21, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That would be greed and inordinate appetite. And he told them a parable saying, 
A land of a rich man produced uh, plentifully. And he thought to himself, well, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, well, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and I'll store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the point that he's, he's driving home is that life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Instead, we need to be rich toward God. But let me give you the setting of the story. It's so interesting. So Jesus is talking to the disciples. They're talking about big heaven issues. They're talking about literally heaven. They're talking about hell. They're talking about getting through persecution. And in the middle of this, this uh, lofty discussion, this guy comes up and he's worried about his inheritance. And so Jesus takes this opportunity and he wants to tell them, look, there are way bigger things and more important things in life than you worrying about your money or your, your greed. And uh, so he says, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. It was interesting to me as I look back through my notes and I remember a number of years ago, I, I did this, this series on money and finance, et cetera, and I came upon the definition of wealth. And I'm, talking, and I'm not talking poverty, I'm talking the definition of global wealth. How do you define global wealth? Uh, you're going to hear it and you're going to think, didn't you mean poverty? No, global wealth. If a person has more than one pair of shoes, a change of underwear, and any form of transportation other than your feet. So a bicycle, a cart, a horse, anything. An extra pair of shoes, a change of underwear, and any form of transportation other than your feet. That globally is called um, wealth. So let me tell you about this story. The story that Jesus launches into is a story that grabs me because I'm loving this guy. I'm thinking, this guy is awesome. Th this guy is the picture of Dave. He could be Dave Ramsey's poster child. I mean, it, he's, he's doing it all right. I mean, it's capitalism plus. It, it's just, it's wonderful. And there are, there are a lot of very good qualities about this story. So let's just look at some of the positive qualities. On the one hand, he was very successful, very wealthy. And again, the Bible does not teach that riches or wealth is wrong. They can be dangerous. But nowhere does the Bible say that riches or wealth is wrong. So let me read 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to, be, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So pointing out a couple things. God provides richly stuff for us to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's really nothing wrong with things. There's nothing wrong with a house or a car, stuff like that. God provides richly for us to enjoy, but he preceded that with a warning. Don't put your hope there. Now, why would he say, don't put your hope there? It's because of what we just read in Luke 12. Life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. That's why instead you be rich 
toward God. The Bible's filled with wealthy people. Abraham, David, Job, Isaac, Jacob, Barnabas. So the problem is not when godly people have money. The problem is when money has us. It's, it's like somebody put out flypaper and a fly lands on the flypaper and the fly arrogantly says, ah, my flypaper. And the flypaper says, ah, my fly. And that's how subtle it is. It really, it can, it can the danger is, it can grip us. So be careful not to set your hope there. I think the problem is when riches or possessions begin to define us, and when they do, they become our idol. So God has got to be first place in our life. We've got to understand that his goodness and his, his control, ultimately control and goodness, will, will allow me to, to experience a freedom over something like greed and experience generosity. So he was successful. He was wealthy. He, he was industrious. I, I love it. You know, he, he worked hard. I mean, this guy, was, this guy was a farmer, and you think of the characteristics of a farmer in order to be successful. They've got to have diligence and punctuality and industry and zeal, perseverance, integrity. Um, you know, you can't be a sluggard and make it, okay? Uh, so he's got wonderful qualities, and I'm sitting here applauding this guy. You know, he's been very successful. He's very industrious. He's very progressive. He wants to invest those talents, and I would point right to Matthew 25, just like the five-talent uh, individual who took those five talents and invested it, made five more talents. So I, I love this parable. I mean, I'm cheering this guy on. I'm going, yeah, this is an awesome. I want to be just like this guy until I get to the next verse. So, so far, it's not too bad. And in verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you've made ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Then oh, geez, all of a sudden, I'm looking and it sort of sneaks up on you. And all of a sudden, you see the juxtaposition of these words. You, you begin to see uh, ample goods and and you start to see security here, many years, and uh, being merry. And all of a sudden, I realize that he's thinking that life really does uh, consist in the abundance of this man's possessions. That's what he's really, he's buying into that lie, that, that life consists in the abundance of possessions. You know, I've got it. I've got all the possessions. So the next thing for me to do is to relax, eat, drink, be merry. And I've got security, many years to go. And he didn't see that as an avenue to be a blessing to others. Instead, to accumulate an inordinate appetite for more. That's the word greed. So in other words, for this guy, he became more like the Dead Sea. In other words, the Dead Sea has a Jordan River flowing into it, but there's no exit. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it stagnates and there is no life whatsoever in the Dead Sea. Instead, what God designed it to be is more like the Jordan River or the Sea of Galilee. Water comes in, water goes out. You know, for some people, the river is bigger than others. Some it's a little smaller, some a little bit bigger, but the principle is the same. Water comes in. It's designed, because it's not yours, 
for water to flow out. And the moment you stop the exit, greed and an inappropriate desire for more, everything stagnates and everything dies. So look what happens. So Jesus shares this example. And then this farmer, he hires the architect. The architect begins to draw up the plans and he decides to go to the back porch and he walks out upon the back porch. He pours himself a glass of wine. He sits down on his rocking chair and he looks out upon all of his fields and vineyards and he thinks, ah, life's really been good. I've got plenty of good things stored up for many, many years to come. Now I'm going to take life easy and I'm going to eat and I'm going to drink and I'm going to be merry. Then all of a sudden, he realized that there was another form next to him, a, a specter, if you will. He says, who are you? And he says, I am death, and I've come to take you now. Slumps over in his chair, and he dies. Well, the neighbors come and the neighbors go. There's weeping, there's consoling. There's almost tragic disbelief at the untimely demise of this wealthy, successful, ingenuitive, creative farmer. And yet, amidst all the pomp and ceremony, God, with his finger, writes one word over his tombstone. Fool. Fool. Because he dared to live as though God didn't exist. He had a very inordinate appetite for possessions, but he was not rich toward God. He was the Dead Sea versus the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus shares a story. He gives a few other illustrations about ravens and birds and hair and, and lilies. But then he comes down and he drives it home. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Okay, the kingdom. So sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So what then would flow from the heart of someone who's trusting him that understands the goodness and greatness of God? What would flow from a heart like that? It certainly won't be this guy. Well, I'd like to turn your attention to another woman. First was a man. This one is a woman. First was very successful, um, very prosperous. This person, very, you would call unsuccessful, unprosperous. This person at the top of the socioeconomic scale. This person at the bottom. Man, woman, successful, unsuccessful, rich, poor, married, widowed. You know, you get the, you get the picture. It's a comparison and a contrast. It's a story about a widow. What I'd like to do as I read the other story, because it's so depressing, I had, you I had you sit. I'd like just in honor of her to stand up. The other was a parable. This person is for real. So let's stand up. And I want to just stand 
And maybe we, let's just, let's read it together. I think the words will be up on the screen. I believe we have it. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Thank you so much. You can go ahead and have a seat. I think the big idea, the point of the story of the generosity of this woman is that generosity really has nothing to do with how much you give. You clearly see that in this story. Rather, it has everything to do with how much you keep. It exposes the inordinate desire to accumulate more. I was chatting with Craig Craig Vanderleest about this. Is he in this service? I don't see him. But I was chatting with him about, about this, and I said, Craig, when, when you talk to clients, when you because he you know, helps people, uh, Chris Lydon does the exact same thing, um, probably others too, I just don't know you, but I mean, they, they, they sing the same tune. <laughs> you know, it's basically, it's, it's give, save, live, so you can give more. Give, save, live, give. <laughs> so it keeps going like that. Whereas the greedy thinks, you know, work, spend, save, you know, sort of like this, this uh, very wealthy farmer. It's so interesting. I was looking up, uh, these statistics are true as of Friday. We looked them up on Friday. And the average churchgoer today uh, contributes 2.5% or less uh, to a, a local congregation, 2.5% or less for the average churchgoer as of yesterday. It's interesting, we look back to the Great Depression. In the Great Depression, the average churchgoer gave 3.3%. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. But your treasure does really reveal your heart, and this woman's heart so shows that she's 100% satisfied with God, and she puts, in the, she puts in everything she has. She puts in two copper coins. They're the smallest minted coin, the smallest denomination ever minted. They were two lepta, about 12 minutes of labor. That's the value of it, about six minutes per lepta, 12 minutes of labor for an average person. So let me just say, you don't have to be great, a great person in the eyes of the world. You don't have to be a wealthy person or a successful person in the eyes of the world to make an impact on Jesus. Jesus saw somebody who would never be noticed in the average church, and he says, wow, this individual had an impact on me. This was incredible. So, and then I, this was so convicting to me. Because I thought, well, if it were me there and not Jesus, and she would have come to me with her two lepta, what would I have done? And it's so convicting. I would have probably scolded her. You know, I would have flipped open my Dave Ramsey book, and I would have said, look here, you, you, need, to, you need to build up your emergency fund first. You know, let's, let's get this under track. And if, if you were to give everything you had, then where would you get your next meal? How would you pay your rent? I've got a better idea. Why don't, why don't you just save it? And let's, let's just save it for a while. And then after you've accumulated it, then maybe take the smallest denomination, if it's around 10%, and then give that. On the best day, I would have said that. You know what I would have probably said? I would have probably said, 
Are you kidding me? I'm, lady, listen, I'm about ready to cleanse the temple. They're a bunch of crooks. You know, don't give your last two red cents to an organization that doesn't deserve a penny of it. That's probably what I would have said. Yet through the centuries, Jesus calls our attention to this widow lady who gives everything she has. I want to give you four dangers to giving from this passage. Number one, the danger of appearances. The disciples were there, and I'll tell you what, their eyes were attached to those who were ringing the trumpets. There are probably a dozen trumpets, six to 12 trumpets around the temple. And there, when they were, if Jesus would ask the disciples who's generous, they would have pointed to all these guys ringing the trumpet, dropping their coins, ringing the trumpets. But I'll tell you what, don't be deceived by appearances. Uh, God delights in exalting those that society pays no attention to. God delights in exalting those that society pays very little attention to. I wonder, I pray to God that if this woman would have visited Parkview this morning, if she were sitting in this service, I pray to God that somebody would have told her hello. My guess is she probably would have slipped in unnoticed. So the point is God takes note of things that you and I easily will overlook. Second danger, hiddenness. We will think, nobody's going to know. Nobody knows my net worth. Nobody knows what I really have. So, so why should I feel guilty? Why, why can't I hide it? And the point is, the one who matters most sees it all. <laughs> and he cares. Thirdly, and this really convicted me as well. The danger of prudence. Prudence is extremely common in the local church. We, we need to be prudent. We need to be wise. We need to be careful. We, we, we better not expose ourselves to too many risks. And so, because we're so prudent, we easily will find shields or loopholes to protect ourselves. And, and listen, I'm telling you, I am so there. I, this is so convicting to me. I find loopholes as well. You know, can our families be a loophole to protect our wealth? Well, I, I need to set it aside for my kids. I need to set it aside for education. I need to set it aside for retirement. So, you know, I can't count that, God, because it's in a 403B. Or it's in a 40ABC or XYZ or whatever, you know. <laughs> so we can sort of deceive ourselves into trying to convince ourselves that God doesn't see, God doesn't know, he can't count. You know, it's, it's protected. You know what the Bible calls that? Corbin. There's an example in Luke about Corbin. 
Fourthly, the danger, and listen to me carefully, the danger of wealth. Listen carefully. When I say the danger of wealth, it does not mean that you should avoid it. Great wealth can do great good. Will you write that down? Just because I say the danger of wealth doesn't mean that you should avoid it. Great wealth can do great good. If it's the Jordan River or the Sea of Galilee and not the Dead Sea. If it's a conduit that flows through you, they're God's resources. But as long as it's a conduit, I mean, your river could be huge. I mean, the Mississippi River... Oh, I'm getting off. I'm going to be over. Forget the Mississippi River. Just take it by faith. It's, it's a conduit. It's a con- I went over big time last hour, so I got to hurry. Um, so so um, the problem is it, what it can do is shift our heart away from loving God to loving things and valuing things. Uh, that's Hey, God provides richly everything to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6. Hey, don't put your hope there, uncertainty of riches. The phrase before that, Luke 12, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. See, the pull of money is almost invisible and insensible to the one on whom its powers are working. That's why it's so dangerous. It can be working on your life and you can be desensitized to, desensitized to it. So be careful. Don't avoid it, but maintain generous, uh, a, a generous spirit, generosity. So how should we give? Number one, let me give you just two points. I think we need to hold these in tandem um, to give proportion, proportionately the principle of proportionality. In other words, and the Bible supports this from beginning to end, if you have more, give more. If you have more, give more. That's easy. For those who had a lot of money in the Old Testament, they gave expensive sacrifices. To the poor, they gave cheap. Well, a doubt. They gave, not cheap, but an inexpensive sacrifice. If you have more, give more. That proportionality. Um, I mean, bottom line, if you have a lot, it's not going to take a huge percentage of what you have to live on. You're going to be able to live on a lot smaller percentage. So you can, you can give more, all right? If you have a whole lot less, you're going to probably have to live on, on a bigger percentage of that. So you give less. And then the principle, secondly, of sacrificiality, to give sacrificially. And that's what Jesus is holding up the model of sacrificial giving. So how do you hold that balance? Or you, hey, you and your wife, if you're married, uh, family, whatever, be co-conspirators in this. You work together to determine what you do. I can't, t- I'm not going to sit up here and tell you, give 10%, Bible says 10%. Yeah, I can, I can find a passage that says 10%, a tithe in the Old Testament. You know, I, I can find that. It, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Um, what I would say, maybe it's a great guide. Use that word. It's not even a target. For somebody who has a lot to target 10%, 
would be a joke almost. Because you have so much, you can give way more. Uh, Letourneau, uh, Letourneau of Letourneau College in Texas, the inventor of the electric wheel. You know, they decided how much they were going to live on. And then as God blessed their business, they just kept giving more and more and more. And they ended up giving all their income. They gave 90% of whatever came in. Uh, Mom and Wally were were here, of course, and uh, they went to visit some good friends of theirs in Michigan, and he was the CEO of a company in Michigan, and they came back and they said, Jeff, we couldn't believe it. He said, you know, they, they live in a, you know, a nice house, and, you know, they have nice things, but they give 50% of what, of what they make. They said, we just don't need it. We're, we're going to just, we're just going to give it. So 10% could be a good rule of thumb. It's a guide. So if you're if you're a single-parent mom, proportionality would say, you know, you might not even come close to that 10%. You know what? Because most of what you have, is, it's going to take to live on. But if you have a whole lot more, it could be way over 10%. So, point is, Jesus commends this widow woman for giving every last penny. And Jesus commends her for her extravagance even though I would have said that's not prudent. That's not wise. You need to be careful. You need to have your emergency fund first. I'd have come up with all this good stuff. But that's not what Jesus said. Now, please hear me. I am not telling you I want everybody to go out, sell everything you have, write a check to Parkview Church. I am not saying that at all. Uh, God values the giver far more than the gift. God values the completeness of your devotion far more than the size of your donation. So what should we give to? Well, it's in your notes there. You do give to support your family. I mean, an unbeliever might not do that, but do that. Absolutely do that. Give to the local church. Give to the universal church. Give to the parachurch. Give to, to missions. We have wonderful mission opportunities. Our budget is filled with wonderful opportunities. We have Kess Hogar. We have Yazalam Mensch. We, we've got choices. We've got, we've got missionaries that we support all over the globe. We've got Faith Academy, the spot. We've got, you know, we've got lots of stuff just in our budget, the Parkview budget. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would urge you, if God puts something on your heart, you know, this maybe not in there, you want to give more to, give more to it. Give more to it. Um, thirdly, give to those in need that the Lord puts in your path. They might not be in our budget, but it might be your next door neighbor who has a tough time. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. If the Lord brings somebody in your path that has a need and you can meet that need, meet the need. Number four, give to the poor. It was um, Tim Keller's, uh, as he commented on Jonathan Edwards, he loves Jonathan Edwards, and he, he quoted in Jonathan Edwards, a Christian's duty to the poor. You know, I don't know if you know, you know who Jonathan Edwards is? He's dead. He was real popular years ago. <laughs> Written a lot of good stuff. <laughs> Uh, he, he, let me just put it this way. He was not a liberal humanist uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but this is what he said in his treatise. He said, quote, Where have we any command in the Bible 
laid down in stronger terms and in a more peremptory and urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor. He says, look, we can, we can debate theology till we're blue in the face. We can choose a lot of things, do a lot of things. But he's saying, look, there is no command in the Bible laid down in any stronger terms. And in this treatise, he quotes over 200 passages where it's not even an option. He said, there, you're not going to find a command laid down in stronger terms and in a more peremptory or beyond doubt, beyond refusal, incontrovertible. He said, you're not going to find anything more incontrovertible than the fact, the urgent manner that we are given to care for the poor. Um, there's a, in other words, he's saying, if you're wondering what God's will for your life is, there, there are a lot of things you might debate, but here's one thing that is incontrovertible, undeniable, undebatable, unarguable, I mean, you might choose to go to two or three Bible studies. You might choose to get involved in this ministry or that ministry. There are a lot of choices. You might choose to get involved in the choir or to play the banjo or to play this or play that or pick up chairs. You, you might have a whole lot of choices to make. But here's one thing. You have no choice. It's peremptory. Beyond refusal. Incontrovertible. What God puts on you to care for the poor. Why? Jesus demands that we act three ways. Number one, he says, you're going to have that persuasion if, number one, you understand the poor. This was so convicting to me. Uh, let me just expose my heart because I'll tell you where I was. Whenever I see somebody who's poor, I either go the l religious route and say, ah, they must not have had faith. Must not have believed God. Trust it. If they'd have just believed God, trusted God, hey, you know. Now, I necessarily wouldn't go that route, but there are a lot of preachers who would go that route. But I'll tell you the route I go is the more socioeconomic route. I go, well, I mean, the Bible makes it real clear. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come upon you as a vagabond, and your want is an armed man. If you'd have just been responsible, if you'd have just not been a sluggard, if you'd have just been more industrious, if you'd have just worked. And then I've also quoted, if a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. I'd have had two good verses. Edward says that without a doubt, the vast majority of verses in the Bible say, say that poverty is not a result of irresponsible behavior, rather irresponsible behavior is a response to poverty and not the cause of it. And he goes through dozens of texts to support this. One of being Proverbs 10, 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. In other words, the poor is a city without walls. They're vulnerable. The rich is a city with walls. If somebody attacks us, we can hire the best this, the best that. We can get the best attorneys. We can get the best doctors. We can get the best uh, accountants. We're a city with walls. But the poor have no walls. And their irresponsible behavior is the result of the poverty, not the cause of it. That was eye-opening to me. It was an indictment on the reversal of my thinking. 
So understand the poor. Secondly, become poor. If we're going to make a difference, folks, listen, we have got to become poor, meaning poor in spirit. If we don't first apply our lives to the gospel and receive the unmerited grace of God, how are we going to respond to somebody else? How are we going to deal with things like envy or greed or next week pride if we're not responsible to the gospel? So we become poor in spirit. We are the kernel of wheat that falls to the earth and die. If this kernel of wheat doesn't fall to the earth and die, you know what I'm going to do? The water's going to come in and I'm going to want to be like the Dead Sea. Damn it up! Because I want to eat, drink, and be merry. I got lots of years ahead of me. Presumptuously thinking. Thirdly, love the poor. John Wesley said, save all you can and give all you can. In 1785, there's a tremendous snowstorm in London and there were people freezing to death. So he walked the streets of London in snow up to his ankles, uh, trying to get money from people to buy used clothes to give to the poor. He raised 200 pounds, which today would be a little under $8,000. And then after he got the money, he bought the used clothes and then he took them back to the homes where the people were freezing to death. And he did this when he was 81 years old. Save all you can, give all you can. Charles Wesley. So I've been meeting with a guy 25 years now. Uh, he calls me his mentor. I laugh. I go, no, no, you're mine. Believe me, you're mine. So we met a couple days ago. And uh, he, he owns a number of businesses and uh, over the years, he has helped so many people, led them to Christ, helped them get started. So he told me the latest story. He said, oh, this is so exciting. He said, you know, I, I just led. So here's a woman that began to work for him, a single parent mom, four children, four different dads. Four children, four different dads, single parent mom. He hires her. She begins to do, wow, she's got an aptitude toward this. So this guy and his wife meet with her and say, you know what, we would love to make you the manager of this business. And in five years, if you can just set aside so much per year, in five years, you'll be able not only to buy the building, but to buy the business as well. Would you like to do that? That is helping the poor. Listen, he couldn't do that if he wasn't a giant faucet by which lots of resources would flow. Very wealthy, but it was an open faucet. There's another super friends of ours sitting here in the first service. 20 some odd years ago, uh, they were involved in, in the spot when the spot first started. and They met a, a young, young guy and uh, uh, not officially, but adopted this young, young boy and have for the last 20 some odd years poured their heart, their soul, their life into this boy. And it's so awesome to see what God is doing. That is helping the poor. Let me give you a couple of warnings. Here's the first warning. This passage is not teaching asceticism. This, this passage is not telling us uh, that we need to take a vow of poverty. Listen carefully. God affirms private, uh, 
property. God affirms prosperity. God affirms and makes it clear that the ability to create wealth actually reflects his image. That private property helps us image back the glory of God by being responsible to help others. God blesses us so that we can stand in the gap for those without. That we can stand against the injustices that sweep across those without walls. That's the first warning. But can I quickly give you the second one? Quickly. Uh, If we've just heard what I just said, if that's what you take away from this sermon, what I just said, and you go, whew, boy, I'm so glad I... I'm so glad that this passage doesn't really mean what I so obviously thought it meant when I first read it. Then we do a huge injustice to the Bible, to God, and to his kingdom. This woman's devotion acts as a challenge to my personal greed. I need to deal with my shields in a big t- I need to come to grips with the fact that God really is in control and he is good. So how should I respond? Real quickly, number one, become poor. Become poor. It's got to start with the gospel. It's got to start with you, Jesus. It's got to start with communion. He gave himself utterly, totally, so that we, Romans 12, verse 1, can be that sacrifice. We don't want to be conformed to the world, but we want to present ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Secondly, so that you can be a funnel for the funds that flow through you instead of the dead end, we have to grow somehow in contentment to be thankful for what we have and not greed that continual appetite for more. We've got to learn to be content. Number three, we need to be lovingly compassionate. And fourth, develop radical generosity. Whether you have a lot or a little, it doesn't matter. Whether you have two lepta or two zillion, develop radical generosity. There are so many ways. You know, whether it be, if, if you've never, if you've, one of the ways as a member of Parkview Church, you should, I, I believe before God clearly points you to passages, we don't have the time to do it, you should support the lo- local church. I can show you passages in the Bible where you should support the universal church. They're, they're wonderful mission organizations. They're parachurch organizations. There's, uh, you know, wonderful things that you can get involved in and support. You know, things like the sponsor a child for Spring Hill Day Camp. You know, for kids, they, they don't have $189 for a week. It's an awesome camp. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful camp. And we love to help them they're not going to have $189. So there's a way out there. You know, you can take a half a day, a day, a week, you know, and help one of the kids. Another wonderful way, if this has been a challenge at all to you, like to me it's been a huge challenge and just the, the incontrovertible insistence on our involvement with people with far less than us, I would say if, if it's a new exposure to you, Parkview has a wonderful avenue to help you get exposed. I think Faith Academy, it's one of the ministries of Parkview Church, and Doug Fern is the, is the leader of that. 
What do you call yourself? The what? Principal? The what? Head of school? He is the head of school. <laughs> so anyway, he's the head honcho. He is the, no. But um, they, they've got a an, uh, Faith Academy banquet coming up on April 23rd. That's just a hair under two weeks away. All I'm saying is just go. Just expose yourself to it. The food's already paid for. You just go out there and, and get a ticket. I, my challenge to you would be just see what's happening. See what's happening. And then pray. That, that would be my that would be some of my challenges uh, for you. Uh, let's all stand up and I'll close with prayer. Lord, um, we just pray that you would examine our hearts. We pray that you would accept us for Christ's sake. And for your glory, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, give us humility and love and faith and hope uh, that we can live life to the full just like this woman entirely, utterly, depending upon you and your goodness and your greatness. Therefore, being a conduit then for your resources, which you, by your grace, have made us stewards over. So help all of us, Lord, to be more like the Jordan River, more like the Sea of Galilee than the Dead Sea. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his sake and for the sake of the kingdom. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.